Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan. I'm my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Before we get into this week's discussion, what I'd like to start by saying is if any of you have been following along, you will be aware that we're in the process of working on the Coach's Corner, um, which is a service that is going to be hosted on our website, a membership site type deal, which is basically intended to educate personal trainers um, and interested trainees on basically the theory and, and practice um, of training and nutrition and lifestyle and all that good stuff. So it's really going to be uh, an applied manner for people, you know, who already have, you know, some experience in the game and now they want to figure out, you know, how they can work with different clients, you know, what the best practices are, what systems to use, how to write programs, how to analyze programs, how to use different, uh, you know, uh, coaching software and stuff like that. So, um, if you are interested in that, what you can do is pre-register your interest in the uh, description box below. There'll be a link to sign up to an email list. And basically that just means you will be eligible for a significant discount when the service is launched. Uh, there's no commitment involved. You don't have to pay anything. You're not committing to anything. We're not going to send you loads of emails, but you will get a discount. So it's a, uh, it's a win-win really, you know? 100%. There's literally no loss on this. You literally sign up. Put your put your email in the box just so we can gauge interest. Like there's there's a couple of people on there now already, um, but it's basically so we can gauge interest. And then what we want to do is launch it for a week with the people on the email list getting a discount for that week, maybe five days, we'll say. Um, but the discount will be uh, you'll be able to use that discount for those five days. So you still even when you sign up you can just forget about it. And then when you get the email, whenever it launches, like we're hoping, hopefully in about a month's time to be able to launch it. And we just want to have a, a good bit of content already in there. And, but you know, once it launches, you'll get an email to say, you know, the coach's corner is live. Here's your big fat discount, right? And you've five to seven days to apply that discount. So even once you get the email and it says, oh, you know, this is live, it's ready to go. You don't have to do anything for another week. You can still be like, hmm, let me think about that. I'll sit on this discount and you know, see if it is something, like have a think about if this is actually something that I want to join. So basically there's no loss for you. You just sign your email up so we can gauge interest. You'll get a discount, you know, because obviously we want to prioritize people that follow our content, actually, you know, believe in our message and all that stuff. Um, and you'll get a discount as soon as it launches. That'll be there for a week or so. And you don't have to use it if you don't want to. Literally, there's no, I'm not going to put a gun to your head and be like, you did use the discount today. You know, there, there's none of that. It's just, here's your discount. Thanks for following along. Thanks for letting us know that you're interested in this. And, you know, join if you want to join. Anyway, what are we discussing today? What is today's podcast about? So today, we're effectively going to be discussing the foundation of everything, you know, how the universe was, was born out, everything, because we're discussing causality. And look, Yes, we could actually, to be, to be serious, you, the, people do get really philosophical about this kind of causation or causality discussion, because obviously the ultimate cause that everyone wants to kind of figure out is uh, how can the universe be created? You know, where is the initial cause? You know, this goes back thousands of years, people trying to have these discussions about what actually is a cause. But in this discussion, we're not going to go deep into all the philosophical weeds, but we are going to apply this discussion of what is a cause to health, essentially, um, health, fitness, nutrition, 
in order to understand these topics, in order to understand what is important, you know, what you should be focusing on or measuring to move the needle on health or disease, you do need, do need to have some understanding of causality. And the reason... This is, a, especially, I know you're just going to say, this is especially true for the discussion that we're having, this kind of article, this article series, this podcast series that we're having yeah. about heart stuff, because we, we already saw it start to creep in into the blood pressure stuff that we were talking about. Right. But the next discussion we're going to have, that's where you really start to see people like lose their minds about this, yeah. you know, correlation, causation, and and all that kind of stuff. Right. So we realized we're like, okay, well, we just basically have to have this discussion before we have the next discussion. So this does still fall within the, the larger heart series that we're currently running, like the cardiovascular series that we're we're currently running. Because you basically need the framework from this episode to really understand the previous episodes, you know, like obviously we're, we, we already discussed them and hopefully people got a lot from them, but you really, really need it to understand the next few episodes. Right. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, to be fair, blood pressure doesn't tend to be, uh, too controversial. Um, it do, it is in some contexts. You know, you you do certainly have people who are controversial, who create controversy. But when we start to talk about uh, atherosclerosis and heart disease and LDL and cholesterol and that sort of stuff, that's where things uh, do get quite controversial. And people, uh, you have people who are branded as cholesterol deniers. You know that sort of thing, which I I think kind of the denier branding is generally not useful. But anyway, um, the 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 causality discussion is just really important to fit into the discussion of cardiovascular disease and all types of disease. So with that said, you know, some examples of where trying to under, trying to establish uh, what is a cause where that becomes important is in thing in discussions, like if you follow um, naturopathic or functional medicine practitioners, they'll often say things um, related to trying to seek the true root cause, you know, um, and they'll often say that conventional medicine, you know, standard medical doctors, that they're not actually in the process of seeking um, the root cause, which isn't actually true. It's, it's definitely more complicated than that. Um, ultimately, like a, a medical doctor is trying to find the way that's going to reduce the burden of disease and risk of death the greatest, you know? So it's not always about establishing um, a single root cause. That's not always the way that we think about these problems. And that will become clear as we kind of move through the discussion. Um, we also have an example where, you know, people will say things like correlation does not equal causation, you know? And that's, that's true in a sense, you know, that's some, that's a valid claim, but it's often used in such a way that it brushes aside any association or relationship between like, let's some sort of lifestyle behavior and a disease outcome. And if we don't have a framework that we can use to figure out when we see a relationship and whether, and how, and whether or not that is causal, if we don't have a framework to work through that, then we don't actually end up any closer to the truth. We just end up brushing everything aside, you know, and we just end up in this kind of nihilistic perspective of, oh, it's all just relationships. We can't find any matters. Everything's just spurious correlations. You know, that's not a helpful way of us to work through these problems. Um, and then again, like an example would be, you know, people with excess body fat, high cholesterol, high blood glucose, high blood sugar, high blood sugar, high, high blood pressure, they have higher rates of heart disease, but what's the real root cause? You know, that, that's the kind of question that we get at when we start to talk about root causes, because you see all these things that are clearly increasing someone's risk. And if you're not actually 
willing to say, okay, some of these things might be causal or are causal, then you begin, you begin actually pushing risk factors to the side and you're looking for a root cause that mightn't actually be there because health and disease are really complicated. Okay. So that's one of the things. This whole framework, basically this discussion is an exercise in the scientific method, right? Yes. I mean the the true scientific method, because like, I, I, you know, like we talked about it before, like I, I don't like this ivory tower, like, Oh, uh, we do science, you know, uh, where did you get your knowledge? I got mine from a university type deal. I'm like, yeah. Um, who, who created universities? They have to be created by someone without a university degree. So, you know, um, knowledge can be gained from anywhere, especially in the internet age. Like it's, you know, it's easily accessible to everyone. Right. And so I, I don't like that, but I also don't like when people basically brush aside the scientific method, which is, yeah. you know, the thing that has brought us from the fucking dark ages, you know, it's the thing that has like given us everything. Like we're recording this on you know, computers here and you know, well, laptops here. So like the only reason that's possible is because of the scientific method. It's not just like somebody goes, you know, I actually think I'll just make this up and uh, hopefully it all works together. You know, like it's, it's not just made up. So the, the scientific method is the method that you should use to, decipher the world and i want to say that in terms of you, you can use this discussion like we're obviously going to talk about it in terms of you know this cardiovascular stuff and then also a few other examples and stuff but you can use this framework to think about everything within the world you know and what i mean by that is that you can use it to think about politics you can use it to think about you know society economics like all of that stuff you can really start to cut through a load of the fucking bullshit that you see in terms of people saying like, this is the one root cause of this issue with this community or, you know, this um, social group or whatever. And it's just like, like, okay, yeah, there definitely are situations where there is a singular root cause, you know, but that just denies the fact that there are a multitude of factors that generally go into creating a situation. And some of them might be, you know, correlative it's just like okay well these things you know sometimes happen together and it can make it look like that's positive but that's not necessarily the case and once you start actually understanding how to analyze information more correctly we'll say um, you start to realize you're like okay well actually the narratives that people say around health fitness politics society whatever you're like this is oversimplified and ultimately that's because humans want to simplify things you know i'd love if they're just like yeah here's the one root cause the singular thing that you have to look after and this issue situation whatever is sorted but you know rarely is that the case yeah that's exactly true and 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 that is something i I was planning on bringing up because really really important is to understand that we are discussing these problems through the lens of health and disease because it tends to be what people are interested to in when they listen to this podcast but you can apply this thought process to any arena any area of life any field of study you know and it's when it's when we no longer begin to actually use that kind of scientific pro- thought process that idea of you know in, in kind of 
Karl Popper's terms, the conjecture and refutation, where we make some sort of con conjecture. I make a hypothesis to you, Patty. I say, I think this might be the way the world works. And then basically what our intent is as scientists is that me and you, we get hammers and we try to kick the shit out of that idea. We essentially try to find every possible way that that could not be true. So that's a falsificationist mindset where we try and falsify our actual beliefs. And there are many fields of study, um, particularly in, in some of the humanities where you're actually able to, you make some sort of conjecture and then you adopt an anti-scientific mindset, which is a verificationist mindset where you begin to actually just seek out evidence and create a narrative that verifies a predetermined worldview, which is the opposite of science. Um, so basically what we're trying to do here is adopt a more scientific thought process. And that is essentially- I, don't, I just want to add on to that. Like, I don't want to, people to think that we're just picking on like the social sciences for that. Like, no, no. <laughs> hard sciences also do that. Like, in the, for I, sure. always, I, I always basically always say, I'm like, oh, that science is fake when, when, when they do stuff like that. Like, neuroscience is ripe for this stuff, right? Where they literally refuse to falsify their information. They'll basically set things up so that they find what they want to find, right? And you're just like, this is not the scientific method. Yes, it is something that you can use to start to inform a truer scientific method in terms of you can build, you, you basically construct a world that you can more easily control so that you can start to see, you know, correlation, causation a little bit better, right? It's the beginnings of the scientific method, right? But unfortunately, a lot of sciences stop there and they don't actually, you know, move on. Or I'm not saying, I'm not saying they're, you know, maliciously stopping there. You know, they're not saying, all right, just we stop there. We're just at the stage of science currently where we have stopped there, which makes us makes it feel like we have more knowledge than we actually do because we haven't really truly applied the scientific process because there just hasn't been enough time to do it. You know, some some researchers have found this, you know, idea, whatever hypothesis, and they're like, Yeah, this is we're gonna fucking really hammer down on this. And people are trying to, you know first of all, prove that it happens in other conditions. So it has to be done, you know, repeated. And then also, then we have to start the process of falsifying that information. You know, that's what, you know, science does eventually. But unfortunately, you're always going to be in this case where you're, you're kind of chasing yourself, where there's a, there's, a, there's a lag between, you know, we've discovered something, you think, between this discovery and then when it's falsified or, you know, confirmed as much as confirmed can be confirmed you know, with the current level of knowledge that we have, you know? So I, I don't want people to think that we're just going, oh, it's the social sciences. It's the sciences, it's the, yeah. sciences, the hard sciences as well, because that's how you start. Like effectively, you can see why people get into this mindset of like, oh, the scientific method is shit because, you know, they got this wrong or they got this wrong. But it's like, that is, that's the, that is the scientific method where it's like, let's generate a hypothesis. Look, the, the information seems to support this currently. Let's see if we can falsify this, right? Now, as I said, some sciences, social sciences, you know, we said earlier on, um, can just end there. And it is, it almost looks malicious, you know? But eventually, and especially in the harder sciences where, you know, the empirical evidence has to support the information, um, it does eventually slowly get weeded out. But unfortunately, we get caught in that lag time between those two events and that gives to the outside world, gives science a, a bad name. Yeah, absolutely. And the exact same thing is true in 
in physiotherapy, in, in medicine, in nutrition, in any field you are going to have. Um, like obviously there's an, there's an incentive structure there, especially if you're trying to make money and if you're trying to do so maybe in, in private industry or something like that. If you have your own business and you're trying to create some sort of um, science-based approach, it's very difficult to actually you know, look into the hard sciences and, and, create, and, and try to say, all right, how can I actually find a way that disproves everything that I'm promoting, you know? So if triage set up their business based on low carbohydrate diets and that was our thing, then we would clearly be seeking out information to try and verify that rather than falsify that unless you're willing to sacrifice your business. So yeah, that's, that's why science, science is hard. But anyway, with that said, this discussion of causality is essentially, um, a sub discussion of that kind of general scientific method. Um, they're intrinsically linked and we'll be able to illustrate that as we move through this conversation. So one example of where you can start to see why we should be thinking about uh, causality or causation is in the case of like, this is the classic thing that's kind of th taught if you pick up an epidemiology textbook, or if you've ever taken epidemiology in college or whatever, they'll probably give you the example of cholera. Um, Cause John Snow, who was basically the father of modern epidemiology, as they say, uh, he was working on the problem of cholera in London during the 1840s and 50s. And basically what he wanted to do was figure out, you know, what was causing people to have this disease. So basically what he did was he went around and located all of the houses that were um, affected. So where people had died, he went to the location of the house and he started to, you know, jot down and note the different patterns between where these people were located. And through that process of being, you know, systematic about it and working through it, he was able to identify that um, all of the, or the, the cases was tend to, tended to be clustered around this water pump uh, on Broad Street. So there was this water pump. And what he was basically saying is that, okay, it seems like there's a cluster here. So then what he did was he compared um, the amount of cases near that water pump versus somewhere else. And he was able to say, okay, it seems like this water pump um, and the, the water from this pump is, is causal. You know, that was essentially kind of the conclusion we could come to. You know, he was, he was basically saying that this seems to be causal um, in this case of the development of cholera. And at yeah, that time... That's a view, yeah. I don't know if you're going to say it. You have to view this in the context that what they, their theory of disease at the time was like miasma, basically yeah. like bad smells or, you know, humors like in the body. I don't know if actually the humors was kind of going out of fashion then. But basically, like, you know, that's why they did bloodletting and different things like that. Basically, like, oh, you have stagnant blood, you know, you need to get rid of that, you know. So they, they didn't, you have to view this in the context that they didn't have the germ theory of disease. Yeah, exactly. And that, that, that's what I was just about to say is that the, at the time, they, they weren't aware of the infective agent, the bacterium vibrium cholerae. They weren't aware of that at the time. They didn't have this, this kind of established germ theory of disease and, and knowing all of these different um bacteria, etc. So basically, he was trying to just figure out, you know, what's causing all these people to die, you know, that's all he wanted to know. And as a result, by figuring out, okay, it seems to be associated with water or whatever, he was able to, you know, enact some sort of public health change that led to a reduction in deaths from cholera. Now, they didn't know that it was, you know, this specific uh, bacterium. But I think the lesson here is that while you still want to further knowledge by trying to figure out exactly what the agent is, you don't necessarily need to know it in order to um, actually improve public health, which, which is essentially the goal is, is for, for us to, you know, not die sooner and to live better quality or to have a better quality of life. So 
that's something that's important to understand, you know, and, and back then, like you say, Paddy, it was kind of like that miasma or miasma, um, bad, bad air, bad smells, that type of approach. That's why malaria is named the way it is. It's basically named that way because it was bad air. You know, they thought that it was because, you know, the bad air around these areas that that was, um, the, the reason people were having malaria, this disease, whereas in fact it was, you know, the mosquitoes that tended to congregate in areas where you had um, that bad air around pools and whatnot. So, those like plague masks, you know, when they have the big like beak thing in and they used to put like yeah. a thunder and stuff in that beak so they didn't smell in the, the bad smells, the bad miasma, you know, which is fucking creepy as fuck, man. If I was walking around like, and there's just some guy with a big beak and a big fucking cloak on and everything, I'd be like, this is okay. All right, we're going to die. <laughs> I didn't actually know the reason for those masks, but that's way funnier now. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, but yeah, basically, so basically, like the the, re- the reason we bring up that example is because it's illustrative of the role of epidemiology in trying to carry out these kind of scientific studies. But what it's also illustrative of is the trap you could fall into if you adopt this mindset of right. There's se- there's a correlation there between the presence of that water pump and that water supply and disease but you don't know that that's causal. So we shouldn't do anything about that. That's where this starts to become a problem (laughs) is because very clearly then you allow people to die. And, you know, in some cases, you know, maybe you might make the case that there could be second order effects of what you're trying to intervene on. So for example, if, if it was the case that, right, you figured out that it's the water pump and you said, okay, so we're not going to give water to anyone. (laughs) Well, clearly that's a problem because then people are going to die of dehydration. But if you're saying, right, we're actually just going to change the type of pump and then we're going to see the effects of that, then that's, you know, a nice scientific approach because you're saying let's replace, you know, X with Y and see the death differences between X and Y. And then you start to see, okay, there's some causal role here. So, and just on that, you can can still be wrong in the, we'll call it the mechanism and still get good outcomes, right? And that's, Again, unfortunately, this is the one I'm talking about, that lag time where you know, we don't have all the information, but we can still make good decisions. Like, again, you could, you could use that uh, framework that they had and say like, oh, we're going to this pump. People that use this pump seem to, you know, die. So you can still use your incorrect framework and be like, maybe there's, the, the pump is causing, you know, bad smells, bad air, you know, for some reason. You can still have that incorrect assumption, have no idea about the, the germs or whatever. And... Um, and still end up with good outcomes, you know? Like you'd be like, all right, for some reason, this pump seems to be, you know, giving off bad smells, bad miasma. So let's not use this pump. Let's see if we can get rid of these bad smells and see what happens, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and another thing that kind of layers on top of that then is the concept of trying to think uh, in probabilities or thinking probabilistically in this context, because what actually happens here is that sometimes people assume that causality is deterministic. And what I mean by that is that if Paddy is exposed to a causal agent, that we assume that that means he is 100% going to have the disease. And that's like, that, that can, might be true in some contexts, you know, but in a lot of, a lot of the time, particularly in the discussions we're trying to have, and this is where we're going to move to, because, you know, we're talking about infectious diseases there, but when we start to talk about non-communicable diseases, you know, so non-infectious diseases, things like cardiovascular disease and diabetes, et cetera, this is actually where it starts to become a little bit more complicated because most of the time we're not talking about things deterministically. So if we have a, a sample of people, let's say of a thousand people, 
And in that thousand people um, who have, they all have high LDL, right? If we see in that population that 300 of those individuals had heart attacks and 700 people didn't have heart attacks, then if you were thinking in terms of like in a deterministic sense, you might say, well, clearly LDL is not causal because 700 individuals did not have heart attacks. So it can't be causal in the development of heart attacks or the occurrence of heart attacks. Whereas that's actually not the right way of thinking about things. So where we would want to actually take this is to say, okay, let's begin to uh, gather up two populations now. So one population the same thousand people, 300 heart attacks. We're going to get a population then who have low LDL, you know, so low or normal. And then we observe that those thousand people, that they only have 100 heart attacks. So now what we can see is that, okay, there's triple the risk in that population of having a heart attack if you have high LDL versus if you have low or normal LDL. So in that context, that begins to hint at a causal role of LDL in this particular circumstance. However, that's actually not enough. And this is something that's important to understand when reading scientific studies is that that, that relationship in that context, and I'm just using these as fabricated numbers, by the way, these aren't like actual risks. Um, the, the, the risks seen in that context, we want to know that they're not explainable by any other factors. And this is really important because it's often studies like this um, that generate, generate these types of uh, correlations or estimations of risk that make the headlines in, in, you know, whatever it be the New York Times or the Irish Independent or whatever. You see these headlines in newspapers, in popular media, without actually considering, are there other explanations that, ver- that, that could actually be involved here? And one, one case of that would be, you know, just to, give it, to layer it on top of our example, if we further analyzed um, this sample of people with high LDL versus low LDL. And we saw that in the high LDL group, there was 500 smokers. And in the low LDL group, there was only 50 smokers. Then what we would then be saying is, okay, we actually cannot establish causality in this context because we don't actually know that the excess risk was the result of the smoking, the LDL, or both. And in, in, in the real world, in actual you know, scientific studies, people would try to adjust for that. So you know, ep- epidemiologists, if they were carrying out this research, they'd want to adjust for things like smoking status, for the presence of other diseases like diabetes. They'd want to you know, adjust for body weight and all that sort of stuff. So then th- by doing that and by working through that process, they'd be able to establish whether or not LDL was causal in this actual relationship. So that's important, guys. That's really important to get because when we start to, when we start to break this down, you do have to realize that we're not, it's not just a relationship between two variables without correcting for other things. You also have to ask yourself, you know, was there a potential you know, source of bias? Is there a potential source of bias in the relationship that you're observing? Because this actually comes into your, your everyday life as well. And you know, a, a source of bias might be, if you were to take a sample of people, um, let's say the high LDL group with the heart attacks, and you actually took that sample from a coronary care unit. So people who very clearly were going to be um, over-representative of cardiovascular events because they're in the hospital with cardiovascular events. If you took that sample then you, and then your control sample was taken from, I don't know, football clubs around the Cork region, then clearly you'd be, going, you'd be taking one sample from people who are going to be very ill and one sample from people who are more likely to be healthy because they're playing sport. So there you've got, you know, poor sampling, you know, so you'd have selection bias or sampling bias. 
And that's something that, that, that can come into scientific studies at times, you know, and sometimes they'll want to have a look at, you know, was this from multiple hospitals? Was it a single hospital? Does that hospital vary from other hospitals? And that sort of thing. So that can hopefully give you some appreciation. There's also confounding. So confounding is basically what we discussed a moment ago. So if there was a lot, if there was a lot of smokers, then that would clearly be something you'd want to think about. Similarly, if you were to say, right, we're, we, we compared low carbohydrate diets and high carbohydrate diets. And it seemed like low carbohydrate diets led to more fat loss. Therefore, low carbohydrates are a causal in the reduction of body weight. But if you then were to further analyze that study and you saw, okay, low carbohydrate group, they actually seem to have um, less overall calorie intake, that they had a lower calorie intake, they had higher levels of exercise, et cetera. And then you were to kind of readjust, you might actually see that relationship disappear. So in that case, you'd say, okay, this was actually this relationship was confounded by the presence of lower energy and higher energy output. Let's say, right? Um, and then finally, you've kind of got the you've got to think about chance in this relationship. So you you've observed this relationship again. You know whether it be um, the LDL discussion or whatever. And let's say you know you have two samples um, of four people, and you're trying to measure the disease uh, the disease risk in in a, in a sample of that's of that size that's not particularly helpful because your sample size is too small and when you have a small sample size the role of chance is going to play a higher role and similarly you want to look at the size of an actual effect so if you're looking at a scientific study and you're seeing that i don't know 501 people um of 1000 with uh in a warm weather group that they actually have higher rates that they have, they have 501 heart attacks. Whereas in the thousand people in the cold weather group, they have 500 heart attacks. Are you going to conclude that um, warm weather increases risk of heart attack? You're not because you're basically seeing that this is a one person difference. It's just not big enough. Um, and again, we can kind of put that down to chance. So they're the different types of things that are kind of introductory points. When you begin to see there's a relationship here, let's think probabilistically. So we're thinking different in terms of risk rather than in deterministic sense where, all right, the presence of X 100% equals Y all of the time. We're thinking, okay, there's a difference in risk. And then once we have established that difference in risk, we want to ask ourselves, are there other things that could potentially explain this and how can we actually work through those? So anything to, to add there, Patty, before we basically just say that, like, first of all, science is hard. Second of all, it is, yeah. the, you know, the sentence science is hard to justify bad science is also just plain ignorance. You know? sure. So effectively you as a, a lay person, or if you're listening to this and you're a researcher, you know, you need to understand that the scientific process doesn't end with one study. You know, that's something that needs to be repeated or expanded upon, or like we were saying at the start, you know, someone needs to try and falsify that information because there are so many things that, can go wrong before you even start the, the study, right? Like you could have selection bias without even realizing that. And you see this all the time. And this is why you should never, you know, people, I don't know, like do political polls, you know, like people will go and, you know, measure a, a political poll to be like, oh, will this person win the election or will this person? And they'll, they'll measure people and they'll do it at two o'clock on a Wednesday, right? But th you've already introduced a selection bias then because you know, perhaps you're, you're now not measuring people that have jobs who are you know, doing their job because it's two o'clock on a Wednesday, you know, so you're only ever measuring people that, you know, fit a certain demographic, you know, or maybe you do it in a, I don't know, a, a lower socioeconomic area or a higher, more affluent area or whatever, like all of that stuff informs the information that you're going to get at the end of that, right? And it might, you, you might be getting 
uh, a selection of people that fit into a certain category that you don't even realize. Like we said it before with like uh, psychology research, you know, like generally psychology research is done on, you know, psychology students because they're easily accessible, you know, but that leaves this, uh, this entire bias within that. I can't, there's actually an acronym for it. I can't remember it right now, but basically it's like, white women are the, the highest percentage of psychology students and all the psychology research is basically just done in, you know, white women. And it's like, okay, well, are they representative of the entire world? No. So do we throw out psychology then? No, but you, you have to understand that there, there is biases inherent in the way you set up experiments because before you do them, you don't really understand or you don't know all the variables. Like you, you simply can't, right? And the scientific process is a, a process of, you know, slowly, slowly, slowly starting to get rid of those little biases. You're like, oh, well actually, you know what? I think you have a little bit of a bias here or there's a, a confounder or, you know, you didn't think of this little thing and now we have to do another study that accounts for that. You know, let's see if we can get rid of, you know, there was a 20% effect size here. And it's like, okay, but you, did, you didn't, uh, you know, account for this thing and this thing, right? So let's account for this thing and this thing and see how that affects what's going on. Perhaps you start noticing like, okay, we accounted for those things and all of a sudden it's a bigger effect, you know? Or again, it could be like, we accounted for those things and the effect was diminished. Again, something like uh, smoking. You could just be like, yeah, let's just do the heart disease and only look at, you know, dietary intake. And all of a sudden you see this huge correlation you think is there you're like that's uh, this is the causation of this thing you know and but then you you know layer on accounting for smoking and all of a sudden you're like oh it was actually this that was causing this like you have all that stuff like the the healthy user bias like they'll always do you know oh a vegetarian diet is you know way better for health and stuff and it's like you you set up the study to basically find that because you compared a a, a, a group that are basically healthy users because they're doing a vegetarian diet because of either they have had ill health previously or they're trying to be healthy and people have been propagating the message that vegetarian diets are healthy. So they have this, like again, this healthy user bias. We have an article on the side about that. Um, and if you just compare them to people that are just, they're like, I'm just free living, eating, whatever. Like you're always going to find that the, the vegetarian group is healthier than the people that don't care about their health. If you're just comparing a group that cares about their health to a group that doesn't care about their health, like obviously you're going to find what you want to find as a result of that. So you basically need to be very, very aware of all of these things before you even go into the study, you know, before you even try to design the study. And it's impossible to do like ahead of time. Like you try to obviously minimize all these little confounders and different variables and whatever, but you aren't omnipotent. You know, scientists are just people. You know, they, they're just like, all right, let me just see if I can figure this, this stuff out. I think this is the thing. Oh, maybe there's this little bit of a bias here and this, this here, and maybe we need to account for that. This is in the, the pathway, the mechanism of this, you know, so we'll account for that thing, we'll account for that thing. But they might still miss five other things that needed to be accounted for. Or the actual the setup, the design of the study might not actually find, or yeah, find what they want to find. It's not set up in a way to actually answer the question that they are posing you know and and that, that that's really hard to do you obviously have to like flip the the framework one of the things i was just reading about it yesterday 
and that's why it's fresh in my mind, is like a, if you do look at any breastfeeding research, right, and you always find they put like formula feeding as the control group and then try to find uh, like health benefits of breastfeeding. But that's completely backwards thinking. You should be doing it the opposite way. The control group should be breastfeeding because that's the quote unquote natural way. And then you should be trying to find health benefits or negatives from uh, you know, formula feeding. But all of the studies, well, not all of them, but pretty much all of the studies use formula feeding as the, the control group. So using that setup, it's very hard to actually answer questions that you may have about breastfeeding, <laughs> right? But that just comes down to the way the, the study is designed because they're trying to find something that they want to find, you know? Um, but anyway, that's just a, a complete aside. Um, but basically what I'm saying is the, the scientific method eventually figures this stuff out. But unfortunately we get caught in this lag time and that makes people crazy. Yep, I have no opinions or thoughts about breastfeeding because I don't really know much about breastfeeding. So <laughs> I'm just going to trust your, your thoughts there. Um, <laughs> with all that said, guys, we, we, we're kind of we're getting, getting a little bit into the, the weeds of the kind of the scientific method and scientific studies and that sort of stuff. But what I want to do is actually bring it back to the discussion of um, causation and causality, because as I said, you know, it's kind of a, a sub discussion um, of, of science and the scientific method in general and study design, etc. And I think this definition by Ken Rothman, who's an epidemiologist himself, um, his definition of cause is quite useful when we're starting to think about the relationship to disease and ill health. And he says that any event, act or condition preceding disease or illness without which disease would not have occurred or would have occurred at a later time. So that is his definition of cause. And that is, it's quite a, it's quite a broad net in that it's not, it's not focused in on a single root cause because like a lot of epidemiologists would refer that to that kind of root cause mindset as being pretty much a naive idea, um, a naive perspective of causation, because if that's what you're solely looking for, then you're going to miss, you know, a lot of other things because, you know, when you're talking about cardiovascular disease or, or any type of um, lifestyle disease, you could say, you're generally going to be discussing multiple different things convening together and contributing to, to risk, you know, so that there could be, um, psychological factors, you know, such as the presence or absence of depression, that that could be playing a role here, that someone's sleep is playing a role, that um, the amount of saturated fat in the diet might be playing a role, their blood glucose, etc. that all these different things are affecting one's physiology in such a way that it precipitates disease. So if you were to try to convene in on a single root cause, which basically ends up being like a mechanistic thing. A lot of the time, you're actually kind of just missing the bigger picture. You're missing all the things that you could potentially be trying to adjust um, and that are playing some sort of causal role because your kind of root cause mindset is just too narrow. So you don't want to adopt that kind of naive thought process. You want to, to broaden it out a little bit, broaden the net a little bit. Um, and then you can start to get an idea of what could move the needle and to do that, you need to be able to differentiate between the actual mechanism of, of the disease or mechanisms and the actual causes. Um, so I think, that, I think that is an area of confusion. And when we start to break down how we define um, causality and establishing if something plays a causal role, the Bradford Hill criteria are, are quite helpful here. Um, before, because before they, we get into that, yeah, go ahead. I want to say that like, on that last bit, um, it is, this is really hard for most people to understand 
when they just initially come to the topic because there there are diseases out there that are like singular root cause things and there are yeah. obviously things that happen and it's like singular root cause thing like if you have a, an inborn error in metabolism or yeah. you just simple it's like all right it, this is the root cause we just have that's one it. mechanistic thing that's the reason for your entire disease state you know or again like the actual like phenomena that people experience in a day-to-day life it's like i fell from a tree i broke my arm it's like well there's the root cause you broke your arm because you fell from the tree right and but obviously you could start to layer on other things on top of that be like well why were your bones so brittle you know like you can start yeah. going way down the rabbit hole with that stuff so it's not technically as you know clear cut uh, clear cut as the you know inborn error in metabolism and um, you just have some genetic abnormality or you know difference than the quote-unquote normal that causes a disease state right so it, it can be very hard for individuals to re- like it, you want you want everyone wants there to be this one root cause because it's so much easier to view the world in that manner where it's like i just look after this one thing and everything is sorted like obviously that's a way better uh worldview or sorry a way easier worldview than going yeah, this disease state is multifactorial. There's X, Y, Z, and this and this and this that you have to look after. And we're going to have to do this, this and this to, you know, treat it or, you know, prevent it or whatever. Like that's not, that's not as sexy as going, boom, singular cause. Yeah, it, it is complicated. I mean, there's, there's many different ways that people try to, to subclassify causes um, and all that sort of stuff as well. And you can, you can look at Rothman's causal pie model. I think that's quite a useful way of looking at things. And you can get a breakdown of what's necessary, but not sufficient, necessary um, and sufficient, etc. So there's lots of different ways you can break down causes. But the, the point here being that, yes, there are different, there's somewhat of a, a hierarchy in that, you know, you might consider calcium in the diet and falling off a tree to be slight like clearly qualitatively they are different in terms of contributing to risk um, of fracturing your femur Um, so understanding that there is some sort of hierarchy and that we can differentiate between them i think that's helpful because i think that's where confusion arises sometimes when we say cause and if we all think it's if we're all thinking about it as being different things you think you think i mean mechanism whereas i'm saying contributes to accelerates the progression of etc um then we're going to be on a different page so with that said i think the the bradford hill criteria um quite can be quite helpful here because they actually allow you to to work through a lot of different problems and i think that this actually extends beyond health i think like thinking of the world in this way is actually quite helpful and like the first the first criteria that they they suggest which is probably the most important is temporality And that means that you want to be able to know that the cause preceded the effect. So that if I observe that something happened and I'm saying that X was a cause, I want to know that X actually took place before the event happened. Okay. Because if it took place after, then that's essentially, it could be reverse causality or it could be totally irrelevant. So an example of this would be something like in one of the blood pressure articles, I brought this up, something like heart failure. So if you have someone who has heart failure, what can happen is that in some patients with heart failure, as their heart begins to fail effectively, their blood pressure can drop. So they can actually have low blood pressure as a result. So if I took a sample of individuals with heart failure and I observe, and I happen to get a sample of the people who had low blood pressure, that subtype, 
then if I do a cross-sectional analysis, so I'm just looking at those people at one point in time, what I might see is that they have low blood pressure. And then if I was to have a basically a naive understanding of causation, I could say, all right, it seems like uh, low blood pressure causes heart failure, you know, whereas what you're actually looking at there is some degree of reverse causality, because what actually happens is that it's high blood pressure that increases risk of heart failure. But as, the, as you actually begin to, the pathophysiology progresses, so the heart begins to fail, the blood pressure can basically drop because you're no longer able to compensate. You're not able to keep the heart working at the level that's required because of the damage that was caused by high blood pressure all along. So that's important because you could actually be led to the opposite conclusion of what is true. And as I'm sure will come, come up in the discussion um, about atherosclerosis and heart disease, another example of where this pops up is in LDL playing a causal role in cardiovascular disease. Because what some people do is they'll point out these uh, some studies that show low LDL um, increasing risk of, of all-cause mortality, of your, of your death, basically. Whereas there's some explanations in there where if someone had something like cancer or infection or other diseases where it's known that LDL drops in response to the presence of these diseases, then what you'd be seeing is that low LDL um, is not necessarily associated, is not necessarily causal in terms of the death, but it's another disease that's superimposed on top of that that basically caused the drop in LDL, that it was that that actually caused the disease. So again, you've got this, this confounding or reverse causality that's built into it that can allow you to miss the actual bigger picture in terms of when there's actually not a disease present and the path to the development of cardiovascular disease. So basically, very simple temporality. You want to know that the cause preceded the effect. And I think that's pretty intuitive for most people, you know? Yeah, going um, back to that falling out of the tree example, like <laughs> broke, you broke your leg before you fell out of the tree. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the falling out of the tree that broke your leg, you know? Like the flow of time goes a certain way. So yeah, I think that, that most people are just like, well, yeah, that's pretty, pretty straightforward. That's it's pretty, pretty understandable. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, you wouldn't say that... Um, like for example, if you go to if you go to university and you get in on a really high points course, you get six hundred points. You're leaving cert, you go to university, and then you study a certain course. If you were to say that, okay, university clearly makes you a lot smarter because these people are smarter in this course than in this other course, you'd clearly be saying, okay, what, what was the temporal relationship there? You know, um, but anyway, that's a different story. Plausibility is the second one, and this is actually one that's. Important, more important in some cases, but is generally regarded as being probably the least important when trying to establish causality. Um, and that's because you're going to be working through all the other things. But plausibility typically relates to biological plausibility. So if Patty says, you know, I think this is causal and development of this disease, I want to say, is that actually plausible? Like, so based on the knowledge we already have in terms of biochemistry, physiology, anatomy, etc. Does this actually make sense? So if you were to say, you know, if you were to say something like, um, uh, it seems like people who squat more, um, buy more oranges in the shop, right? Something like that. I'm like, I can't think of any plausible reason why that would be the case. However, it could be the case that we just don't have that knowledge yet. We haven't actually uncovered that, you know, and that would be the case in something like, John Snow's discovery or, or the, the research we discussed in relation to cholera, he wasn't able to establish full plausibility because he didn't know that Vibrio cholerae existed. He, did, he wasn't aware of the germ theory of disease. So that's why I say that it's probably the least important because knowledge is, is going to be moving forward and accumulating. 
So as science progress, progress and science moves forward, it could be the observation that precedes the discovery of the mechanism, you know, rather than discovery of the mechanism preceding the discovery of the, the observation or the, the disease outcome or whatever it happens to be. So that's important to understand is that yes, plausibility is important. And what you, what you would then want to do if we stick with kind of the LDL example, because it's come up a few times, if we think, think about LDL and heart disease, what scientists would then want to do is they'd want to, you know, see, is there plausibility that this could be involved in cardiovascular disease? And then you'd say, okay, yes, it seems like there's this mechanism that leads to the development of, of plaques in the arteries. And okay, we, when, we, when we look down the microscope, we see the presence of LDL here and we see it gets oxidized and blah, blah, blah. Basically, you're, you're figuring out a way that this could actually be biologically plausible. So that's the second thing. If someone's making a prop- proposition, is it actually plausible that that could be the case? There was a study that came out in the New York Times last year or earlier this year. And they were saying that people who visit museums uh, more often tend to live longer. And it's like, really? Come on. You know, <laughs> there's a very obvious confounder there. The confounder there that people who visit museums, one, they're, very li- they're more likely to be of um, higher socioeconomic status. You know, they're going to be wealthier people a lot of the time, you know, who are going to spending all their leisurely time in museums, um, looking at art and whatnot. You know, that's probably going to be an association you're going to have. Also, if people are walking around in museums all day for three, four hours, they're probably going to be of good mobility. You know, they're not people at home in bed because of disease or whatever. So you've got other things that are confounding that relationship. And at the baseline, is it biologically plausible that looking at art in a museum increases lifespan like not really you know <laughs> maybe vague like yeah oh, like, happier you know makes your mood boost and everything yeah <laughs> but like, it's oh, kind of the, the steps that they're getting the steps <laughs> but it's kind of like meh, if you were to go into the weeds on that yeah probably probably doesn't stand to scrutiny so, yeah. so this yeah. plausible argument is actually one that you know trips up so many people because then we start getting into that thing which we might discuss later on which is that kind of like mechanistic hypothesizing versus mm-hmm. like phenomenology which is like i've observed something versus like here's a mechanism i'm proposing and again like obviously i have this slant towards the mechanistic stuff because obviously i study biochemistry and you know that's what i like but you see people make these complete like mental gymnastics of like oh let's do this little tiny pathway to which in every other context is you know irrelevant but we're just going to make it the most relevant thing right here you know um, and you see this discussed in nutrition as well as like d- disease like health and disease stuff and it's like oh well you know this little tiny thing if you do this if you play around with your calories and your macronutrient spread you'll get this you know magical like fat burning benefit from this whatever protocol that i'm suggesting and it's like like i understand that you're making making this sound like it's plausible and you're providing a plausible mechanism but it's not that doesn't mean that it is the actual cause you know so the the, the whole discussion of like plausibility obviously it ha- it's a discussion about is this plausible of actually occurring like again like you can go into that like temporal thing it's like first of all it has to pass that and then is it plausible that this actually occurs in the body you know but you also have to layer on ter- and <clears throat> on top of that like the, the magnitude of that plausibility you know it's like you can't just pick a random little minuscule pathway or something that you know sometimes happens in 0.001 percent of uh cases and be like right i've shown that it's plausible skip over this you know 
Yeah, absolutely. So they're kind of the two, they're the two ones that kind of warrant those, those little bits of nuance because temporality, as I said, most important, because if you don't have that right, like no point even moving forward, you know, and plausibility being the other one that's, that's, that's quite important to consider because it mightn't actually be important at all, you know? Um, and in some cases it is, of course. So yeah, it's something plausible then the other ones are consistency so as you said earlier patty is this observed across multiple populations you know so if we if we do one study and we see we see x outcome but then all the other research is basically the opposite it's like all right this doesn't seem to be a consistent effect it's not it's not reproducing when we reproduce this study in different populations or in different circumstances you know so you might want to do a, a study in in people of of different weights or that eat different diets you know um different ethnicities etc you know is this a consistent effect and if it's not a consistent effect might we need to subclassify this further, you know, so that the effect could be different in people from Ireland in our climate and people from Sweden or something like that, you know? So is it a consistent effect? If you're seeing that consistently across all the populations we study, across all ages, et cetera, that LDL is increasing risk of cardiovascular disease, it's like, okay, it's hard to keep brushing this off in that case, you know? Um, then there's the strength of the relationship. So are we talking about- Just before you go on to that consistency thing, what you can also find though, and again, this throws a, a, a spanner in the works, um, is that you'll find populations where your observed research isn't consistent. And For then sure. what people will do and they'll go, look, see, we found the, you know, this is clearly not the case. There's something else going on. It's not this thing because I found this one population that, you know, this, it's not the case, right? And you can, again, you can understand how that would be a, a, a normal reaction. If you're like, this is the, the mechanisms that happen and this is the cause and you know, we observe it across all these populations and then someone comes out and goes, well, I actually have this population where that's incorrect, right? You can see how people would be like, all right, so obviously let's get rid of that theory, it's incorrect. However, what you actually have to do is you know, dig a little bit deeper into why that population isn't experiencing that. And again, that could be a mechanistic thing. For example, I don't know what the actual correct term is Eskimos or Inuits. I don't know. They're not all the same peoples. And um, I'm going to presume Inuits because that's what they always call them when I read my Viking books. So I'm going to presume it's, it's Inuits. Um, but uh, like they don't get ketoacidosis. So they can eat like super high fat diets and just have an ill effect. So you could have the presumption across all these populations of the earth and be like, all right, we're seeing ketoacidosis. It seems to be causative or be caused by, you know, this occurring, you know, diabetes, blah, 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 all that stuff. You know, we have a, a fairly good idea of this, but they just don't get it. So you go, this population doesn't get it. Your entire theory is wrong. But what actually is the case is these people have been, you know, in a situation where the selection pressure has been for mutations to occur. So that allows them to actually have those adaptations so that they don't get it because everyone who was able to get it died because they have to eat you know, basically super high fat diets because they're in the Arctic tundra, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so with the, the, the consistency across different populations, you, if there are inconsistencies, you have to first, before throwing out the, the research, you have to understand why those inconsistencies occur. It could again be study design. It could be all those, you know, scientific things, but it could also just be that that population has, you know, genetic differences because we have to always remember that, like populations are made up of individuals and while there might be genetic differences in terms of this population versus this population like there might be you know 
because of historical, cultural, whatever, there might be differences in those populations. But you have to remember that those populations are made up of individuals and there's likely to be differences between those individuals. So you might have three genes that are, you know, cancer protective, but you might have one gene that is, you know, cancer promoting, you know, we'll, we'll call them, we'll classify them like that, incorrect, but you know what I mean? Um, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, look at this population. These get more cancer, they get less cancer or whatever. And it's like, yeah, okay, well, there's been a selective pressure for this adaptation to occur, you know? Um, so you do have to factor all that stuff in, which as I said earlier on, it's just quite hard to do. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, the most obvious example there that's, that's relatable to everyone is, is age. So, you know, if you're doing a study on people who are 90 years of age, you know, when you're comparing mortality risk based on some variable, it's kind of like, well, clearly we might expect that there might be a, some sort of difference there because they're all likely to die anyway. You know, sorry to our 90 year old listeners, but it's very likely that they're all going to die soon anyway. So, you know, your relationship there between different variables or, you know, whether you want to treat something that's, that might be considered high in a young person, that might actually be different. You know, sometimes in, in cases where, you know, you have ca- some types of cancer in the elderly, doctors are just like, yeah, like th- it's not worth our time trying to screen for that and treat that and everything because it's actually like to be, likely to be more harmful than just letting this person live the rest of their life. You know, they're ninety anyway. Um, so basically, like, like, the cancer that kills you in five years, like that's yeah, like, it's right? like I'm it's like probably gonna die anyway. Mm. Obviously, you as an individual can you know pay for it and be like, I actually do yeah. want treated. Like that's obviously the case, but yeah, but basically that is just one thing that could affect the the. Conf- the consistency of relation, your relationship, as well as like very significant um, population differences, like you mentioned, Patty. Um, and then there's the strength of the relationship, very obvious one. If we're looking at something and it's got a 10 times increase in risk versus a 1.1 times increase in risk, then we're going to be more concern, concerned that, yeah, that's probably causal. You know, So when you, when you look at something like smoking, um, and risk of lung cancer um, and various other diseases, like you see a very large relationship, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very strong effect. Um, whereas you might look at other small little dietary variables and you're like, ah, mm, it's kind of subtle, you know, the relationship isn't that strong. We're not too sure, you know? So if you were to stratify based on some sort of nutrient in the diet, then you'd be like, you might see some ch- slight change in risk, but then you have to ask yourself, you know, what else is in the food matrix? What else is in that food? What other foods do people that eat that diet high in that nutrient? What do they have? Where are they based? You know, so is there a difference between, as you said, the, the Inuits, you know, in terms of their nutrient status and Irish people and, and blah, blah, blah. So the strength of the relationship um, is going to change your interpretation of causality. If it's a stronger relationship, you're more likely to say, okay, this is probably, probably causal, but you're still working your way through all these things. And then the dose response relationship, which is directly related related to it um, or a biological gradient it's often called so if we're taking the ldl example again if we have populations and we stratify them into low medium high medium and super high or something uh, on that classification so we have four different groups do we see an increase in the relationship to cardiovascular disease as ldl is increasing from low to very high um, and if we see that dose response relationship that biological gradient then we're like okay you know that seems to be causal and it's not always the case that those relationships are like directly linear to be causal they can be like non-monotonic you can have types of um, responses to different um, disruptors and chemicals etc that basically kind of go up and then go down and then go up again so you can have different relationships um, 
to how people respond to drugs and different exposures, et cetera. But basically the point there being that if we're seeing this dose response relationship, we we're, again, increases our suspicion that this might be causal. Um, it's easy to see. The last two points are easy to see and say, you know, response to resistance training. You know, you're just like, oh, the yeah. strength of the uh, effect. You know, you can, you can very easily just apply those two things to, again, the resistance training context. You can be like, do squats, you know, lead to bigger legs or people that squat have bigger legs. You know, you can start going like, okay, let's actually look at populations that this is the case or well, that, that squat rather than, you know, we actually find what we're trying to find. Um, but you start looking at that and you're like, okay, so there does actually seem to be a rather strong correlation between these two things. And perhaps it is positive, you know, and it's like, mm, it does seem to be somewhat of a dose response. It's like these individuals have been squatting, you know, two times per week for 10 years. There does seem to be some sort of like dose response type deal. And you're like, we can probably, you know, presume that squatting leads to bigger legs, you know, like you can start looking at things like that in terms of like, you're like there seems to be the correlation here. Is it causative, you know? Yeah. And like, I mean, that's, that's also the case with, you know, a lot of um, nutrients and things like that. You know, you could say that, you know, having, if we, if we say that um, vitamin A is bad, because someone died of vitamin A toxicity from having too much vitamin A, that doesn't mean that... Just on that point, just don't eat polar bear livers if you don't want to die of uh, vitamin yeah. A. Yeah, I came, ac- I came across some study the, the other day, I think, I think it came in my, my inbox, whatever it was. It was some weird type of organ from... No, some weird type of colorful fish or something that was really high in vitamin A, and it was like a case report of some guy who ate this random fish, and it was... <laughs> I think it like had scales and everything like, man, why did you eat that? But anyway, basically, yeah. (laughs) But anyway, he had vitamin A toxicity. So point there being that, look, you could have, you you can have toxicity and you can have insufficiency and you can have a healthy range in the middle. So it's not always a linear relationship. And I think most people do get that to be fair. Um, You know, people often talk about it with resistance training, like training zero times a week is probably pretty bad. Um, But training at, 500 sets of legs per week is also probably not great so there you go yeah well obviously then you have reversibility and this is this is obviously a really important one we talk about causality like the my favorite example it is because it's just it's just ultimate skin in the game like what a move the the dr dr barry marshall who who basically proved that um h pylori helicobacter pylori he proved that that was basically the causal agent to the development of gastritis and stomach ulcers and later on stomach cancer um he basically he was frustrated because what he was seeing was (laughs) no one would listen to him because you know they were just kind of saying the the consensus is kind of like yeah it people get stomach ulcers uh, because they're stressed um and it was basically kind of an all in your head type of 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 deal you know people were just saying ah, that that's kind of the way it works um and to, to some degree true but basically what he was saying is that <laughs> what what he was trying to say was that he, was that H. pylori is, is the causative agent. He had studied these things. He had you know, worked with a pathologist and he had been looking under the microscope and he you know, sees this little squiggly shaped boil. And he's like, this guy, man, he's the causal agent. So what he did to prove his point was he drank a drink with H. pylori in it, basically, his little H. pylori potion, infected himself, got really ill, and then performed surgery on himself. <laughs> what a boss. Like, um, but yeah, it was, it was basically... Uh, he treated himself as well. With pretty boss. Yeah, tre- sorry, that's the important bit. Treated himself with antibiotics. Basically made him get, himself get sick um, and then 
basically took the antibiotics. So, so yeah, basically uh, he was able to say that, look, this is reversible because I got better. Um, I'm actually thinking now that I just make up that part about him doing surgery on himself. I'm not sure, but regardless, that's not really important. Basically what he was, what he was trying to prove there was that there was a reversible element to this. So he was able to say that when, when you actually take antibiotics to get rid of this agent, that this is reversible and hence it's causal in the relationship. Um, so basically you want to be able to see that something is reversible. So if someone has high LDL and they develop atherosclerosis um, and then they actually take a statin, some, some sort of drug that reduces LDL, or it could be a nutrition intervention that reduces LDL, does that reduce cardiovascular risk? You know, And if it does, we're like, okay, again, strengthening our suspicion that this is a causal relationship. And, and then finally- Even yeah, at this point, you can be wrong, but still have the right outcome, right? Yeah. The mechanisms, everything can be wrong and still have the, the right outcome. You know, like even in that last example, he could have given himself high H pylori and been like, look, I got this and this is clearly the causative agent and, you know, I treated it and I got rid of it. But there still could be other stuff going on that maybe mm-hmm. the H pylori, you know, triggers, um, you know, some other, I don't know, it, it secretes some enzyme or something that triggers something else that goes on. And that's the actual cause. So the H. pylori is just like a one part in the overall puzzle. And there are other causes that can go into it because there's actually this one singular root cause, which is uh, this other, you know, something that's happening to actually cause it, you know? So again, the whole time through this, you're just building a bigger picture. You're not, you're not saying that you're completely correct and that you have all the information, you know? Yeah, and that is important because again, it comes back to the discussion of, causes versus mechanisms because like you can like when you're talking about um bacteria and stuff you know causing causing disease you know a lot of the time these bacteria they basically produce uh, certain toxins and stuff and then it's the toxin relating to the cell within the gastrointestinal tract or whatever and then you're saying yeah but that's still not the root cause because technically it's actually this one little um, spike on the toxin and then you say okay so what's the amino acid composition of that spike and you basically just end up at, at, at quantum physics you know eventually but, that's, <laughs> but clearly that's not a useful framework <laughs> for health and medicine because if that's always like where you're looking you can't see the bigger picture so you yeah. do need to be able to look to zoom in both. and zoom basically out. you need to have yeah both understandings because yeah you- build it with the H pylori, H pylori hypothesis here. You're like, boom, 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 boom. And you're like, you get these people that are saying, it's because of this little one thing and you know, it's this amino acid sequence and it goes all down. And <laughs> both of those things are important to understand, right? Yeah. Because you need to have the, the fine detail of the, the, the mechanisms as well as, you know, the, we'll call it the causative agent here. And um, because what you might experience is other bacteria that do the exact same thing, you know? So if you've already built up this understanding of the the mechanisms and you're like right it's because of this this and this that this end outcome occurs now you see it in a different context you already have a a better understanding of you know how to treat the issue you know maybe there's five different bacteria that we eventually discover that cause stomach ulcers you know it's like all right well we still know how to treat them because we gained a better understanding of this one mechanism that was occurring you know Yes, sir. Um, so yeah, basically you need to be able to zoom in and you need to be able to zoom out and you need to be able to look at the bigger picture. Um, and that, that's kind of our whole point is that causes 
like reside at multiple different levels of analysis. Um, and you can say that something is causal at one level of analysis and still hold true that something is causal at a different level of analysis. And, and that's really the discrepancy here between the single root cause mindset and being able to zoom in and out and also weigh up different types of causes and in a sort of web of causation, you know? So if you're, if you remember like, uh, pro evolution soccer and and one of the games like i think skyrim runescape any types of those games um you basically have you know different characteristics so like i've got 90 strength you know and i've got 50 creativity or paddy's got 70 armor or whatever you basically zero cats zero cats you've got these different levels um of, of contribution to your overall ability in the game and when it comes to causation and disease again you've got different contributions so you could have, you know, right, it's uh, 60% genetics, it's uh, 30% uh, diet, it's uh, 40%. Um, you've got 40% on the scale of physical activity. You've got uh, 90% on the scale of the presence of a particular bacterium or whatever it happens to be. Basically, you're treating it in terms of a web. Um, and then the final, the final little element of that Bradford Hill criteria, just before I forget, we already touched on it, is study design. So is your study designed to actually find this? Like we said earlier, if you're looking at a cross-sectional study, cross-sectional means you're looking at one point in time. You're basically, you're not looking forward, you're not looking back, you're just sampling the, uh, a group of people who have a particular disease or whatever, and you're saying, all right, you know, what's actually going on? What, what do they actually have? So we see, okay, these people have cardiovascular disease. They also play the piano. Um, they, you know, they, they like to go walking. Um, they eat lots of saturated fat in the diet, et cetera. You're working through these different things, and then you're trying to see what are the relationships. Basically, um, and, uh, this huge questionnaire and goes, yeah. I, just, I don't, I'm not looking for anything necessarily. You obviously potentially are looking for something. You're just going, here's this massive questionnaire of, you know, all of the confounding factors that, you know, we might maybe in the obscurest world be something. And, you know, we're just looking for whatever we find. You know, it's not like it's basically just a huge questionnaire. Yeah. And that could give you hints, that cross-sectional study, because it's saying these are the characteristics that tend to cluster together in people who have the disease versus those who don't have the disease. However, what you then want to do is actually have studies that are a little bit more rigorous. So for example, something like a, a randomized control trial um, where you're able to actually randomize people into, into different groups and assess the effects, or it could be a prospective cohort study where you follow a group of people over time and you see how people, you know, with different exposures, for example, how does their disease risk change? Cause now you're looking at that kind of temporal nature because you can't establish that temporality, which we discussed was really important if you're just looking kind of cross-sectionally. Um, so you, you do need a bit more information. So that's just the study design stuff. Um, on that as well, like you'll see this in, especially the study design, like the cross-sectional nature one and um, you'll see this with nutrition a lot where they'll just categorize these things together because it really depends on how you actually you know ask the questions within that kind of questionnaire you know if you say have you i don't know eaten red meat and you have like uh, examples of red meat and like it's like all processed meat you know that's obviously going to be different you're going to get a different idea of someone's red meat intake versus if you had a few different questions on that in terms of it's like you know, have you had like, I don't know, pasture raised red meat and, you know, um, you ask a, a more detailed question rather than, you know, you've categorized a few different things together. Like you see loads of that as well, where you see people will have their, you know, red meat intake as pizza, you know, because they had some like ham and pepperoni on their pizza. You know, it's like, is that really, are you really able to compare that to someone that's eating, I don't know, you know, steak? Like, are you? Mm. Probably not. So 
the study design, the actual questions you ask, need to answer what you're trying to actually ask, which is extremely hard <laughs> if you're trying to use something that wasn't necessarily designed for that specific question that you're answering, or rather that you're asking, and um, because you're just trying to find things that correlate, you know? So that's why, you know, further studies are then done. And as I said, there is this kind of time lag with science and while people are like, oh, well, this kind of study, this is shit, and we should just look at like uh, randomized control trials and then meta-analysis, and th this is all better. It's like, they, they all have their place. There's, all, there's a function for all of these things. It's all about informing our, you know, ultimate knowledge down the road, right? So you shouldn't jump on this one thing that, you know, doesn't necessarily answer what you wanted to answer, but you can definitely use that to inform better questions down the road, better study design, better, you know, uh, you know, effectively, yeah, questions and answers down the road. But you will see that quite often people will use information that is inherently incomplete information to develop a fully formed hypothesis. Yes, sir. Um, and with that said, I think that covers that co covers all the kind of Bradford Hill criteria discussion. I think it covers most of what we want to discussion, discuss in terms of causation. Did you want to touch on anything else? No, I think that <coughs> does get everything. <coughs> Excuse me. Just to make it, let's just bring it back to being like applicable to mm. the actual individuals listening to this. So yep. if I have a, a question, you know, I'm trying to understand whether it's a, a claim made about health and fitness or it's a claim made about like resistance training or it's a claim made about nutrition. How do I as an individual use this information we've just given them about like causality? How do I use that to better inform the, the answer I get? You know, like, like basically how do I get the knowledge that I know to fall into the right position on this causality you know, spectrum? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm not gonna lie like a lot of this stuff is like it does require a lot of work to 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 work through and get like a true answer like if you're just going from like first principles and you're saying i'm gonna actually start with my pubmed search and i'm gonna work through all the available research and i'm gonna go through all these criteria it's quite difficult to do that um but what i would say as, as a kind of a user of information whether it be a, a trainer or as a trainee themselves and you're trying to put this information into practice like i would kind of use it as just creating a sort of healthy skepticism to be able to say that when you look at a claim that you don't just you know, say, oh, because it was someone with a degree that said it, that you trust it, you know, that's, that would be my, my piece of advice. Don't just believe, believe something based on authority that you can actually use this information to try to understand what, how much you should be concerned about something. So, so for example, if you were, if you see a study um, that's in a newspaper and it says, uh, these people have double the risk of uh, this disease or whatever, you might want to understand, just even ask yourself, could there be something else to explain that? You know, so could there be something else that's involved in those people's lives that could have contributed to their risk? Or is this thing that they're saying, is that definitely the cause? And if you have listened to this podcast, what I would say is that you should probably know that establishing causality is, it's complicated, but also not so complicated that we need to wait to find a single root cause. So if you're seeing all this information from people that says, you know, look, you should probably eat vegetables for health. It's probably a good idea. You're seeing that by like the vast majority of people. And then you have maybe some people who are saying, 
oh, but we don't really know like what the, what the real mechanism of vegetables contributing to health. We don't really know what that is. Like we don't know how causal they actually are. Be skeptical of that because I would say that's kind of a naive approach to causation. And, th- and that's what we wanted to get across in this podcast is that there's multiple different levels of causality. There's different things that you, that are going to contribute to your health. And that even, even when it comes to thinking about your own health, recognize that web of causation type of framework. So recognize that it is a web, it's different things that are contributing to your health and that you don't need to focus solely on one causative agent, whether it be exercise or nutrition or particular nutrient to try and preserve health because it is ultimately all of these things coming together. So that's what I would say is that if you can use that to understand um, that health, health is complex and lots of different things contribute to it, but also to uh, form a sort of healthy skepticism when you are reading um, popular media or things that people are saying on social media, especially if, if it's something like, oh, look, uh, researchers have just found this association between blueberries and cancer or whatever. You know, you want to say, okay, you know, is that, is that plausible? Why, why would that be plausible? Is it a consistent effect? Is this a single study? How strong is the relationship? Um, are there confounding variables? Um, is this a temporal relationship? You know, so did the people with cancer start eating blueberries because they were told um, that it might be healthful? Or is it the case that all these people ate blueberries all their lives and then developed cancer? So um, I would say that there's a lot in this podcast that can form healthy skepticism um, for sure. There's also like ultimately as a, an end user, an individual who's just concerned about their, their health and fitness or again, someone who does coach people in their, their health and fitness journeys. Like you don't have to have all of the answers, right? Like you can still make better decisions based on, you know, incomplete information because that's ultimately what we're all working on, you know? So while you think like, science is this immutable like it's 100 percent factual like that's just not the case so you you should use it to inform your practices but you were given an example before this which i want you to go through in a second um but you can make good decisions with incomplete information to still get the outcome that you want right and i'm going to come back to that in a second but i want you just to go through that one uh about uh sudden baby death syndrome, you know, in the, in the cots. Oh yeah. There is, there's, there was, there was a case of, um, basically they, there was an identification of, uh, sudden infant death syndrome that it was increased because of, um, babies basically being placed down in their cots, uh, on their, on their stomach, on the front of their body in a prone position. Um, and there was a, there was a claim then from, um, someone, I can't even remember who it was, um, but it was basically someone, someone turned around and said, well, we should actually wait and ensure we're aware of all the mechanisms that contribute to that increase in mortality before we actually start to intervene and make a change, <laughs> which, which clearly is that kind of naive um, idea of causation where you're so worried about all the mechanisms that you're not actually going to intervene and create a public health intervention that could save lives. So rather than just saying, let's pop babies around on their backs. You actually just leave them on the front because you're like, oh, we don't actually understand all the nuances, you know? So that would be similar to you saying, you know, I'm actually going to eat a diet that's composed uh, mostly of uh, just lots and lots of junk food uh, and no vegetables or fruits because I'm just not sure that the, the that everyone's aware of all the mechanisms that play with diet yet. So I'm just going to hold off for another while, <laughs> you know, that you're not able to act in the world in the presence of uncertainty. So you have to be able to act in the world in the presence of uncertainty with incomplete information. Otherwise, like, you're just going to die, like, you know. 
and you can see this again play out. This I want to touch on two things. First of all, you can see it in like the the COVID response by government. Oh yes, they literally just like they, they don't know what's going on. Again, what what are you going to do? You just got this random novel virus. It's like, see you later. You know, people are telling you it's killing everyone. Of course, you're going to put uh, close down the country. And um, however, as it progresses, you kind of go, okay, we had incomplete information. We're getting more complete information. Let's change our timelines. And you can we can argue. Uh, uh, we can definitely argue because I would be 100% down for that about, you know, how fast they should have acted, you know, after the fact that more knowledge is, you know, made and you don't have to have complete knowledge and be like, right, well, the, you know, the, the mortality doesn't seem to be as bad as it was initially put out to be. You can then say, like, we should just open up the country. But you have to understand that, again, we're always working on incomplete information. Like you as an individual, if the government can't work on they're probably getting more information than anyone else they can't work on you know uh incomplete information they're just like you know we're just going to wait until we have the complete story you know you can't do that if there's lives at risk you know so you have to factor that in so while i definitely am more pro smaller government um we do have to uh really keep in mind like we're, we're all acting on incomplete information and you're going to be wrong. It's a simple fact of the, the world, the universe, that you're going to be wrong about stuff because you just don't have all the information. Nobody does, right? Um, but I just wanted to say more specifically for individuals um, looking to use you know, information that we're presenting here uh, in, a, in a manner that informs their, their, their decisions, what you can do, if you're still you know, sitting on the fence about a certain topic, you're like, mm, look, they're saying this about maybe, I don't know, blood pressure or heart disease risk or whatever. Again, like I was saying, like maybe you're like, oh, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to change my diet and eat fruit and veg because, you know, there's just, we just don't know all the mechanisms and I'm just going to eat my junk food instead. Like you can still move towards better diet practices in this example and um, with incomplete information. But you can still do so in a way that you have some skepticism because what you can do very easily is, you know, get proxy markers measured. Now, we're not obviously saying like you need to go out and get full blood panel and all blood work and, you know, do everything. But if you are concerned about a certain thing, for example, heart disease risk, and there's a large portion of doctors and scientists, et cetera, and they're kind of like, yeah, LDL seems to be in playing a role within this you know here's the quote-unquote healthy range for ldl you can literally just go get that measured on a doctor's visit you know see where you're at see okay maybe i was thinking about changing my diet towards this intervention and maybe you do that and then you see you get it measured again you're like yeah it seems to have improved you know but you don't need to understand all the mechanisms to see that you know you also don't need to necessarily get the measurements to make the intervention I'm saying that if you're a truly skeptic, you're like, oh, I just don't really believe these people, you know, like you should still, you, if, if that's the case, then you should have more objective data to inform your decisions. And what you should definitely not do, and this is the only reason I brought this up, is move the goalposts once you've done those measurements. Because you'll see this all the time where, again, we're going to talk about the the atherosclerosis and stuff um, and LDL and all that kind of stuff, what you'll see people do is they just completely change the goalposts once they find a negative uh, outcome from what they were trying to find. For example, they'll be like, yeah, saturated, saturated fat doesn't matter um, to LDL, right? And they'll get their LDL measured at the start and then they'll get their LDL measured once they are eating a 50% of their diet from saturated fat. 
And then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, my LDL is through the roof. But then they just change the goalposts and they're like, you know what? LDL actually isn't a factor in, you know, atherosclerosis or heart disease or any of that stuff. And you're like, okay, can, can we just define this stuff first? If we're going to start moving the goalposts continually, because then you'll be like, all right, well, what is the, the factors? And then you'll measure those. And then they'll get those measured and see where they're at. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, those ones actually don't matter as well because they're, they're in a, a negative, quote unquote, place. You know, and they start making all of these different claims uh, around it. They basically just keep shifting the goalpost and keep shifting it. And it's like, we're just chasing, you know, a ghost here because as soon as we say this is, you know, correlative or this seems to be in the, the causative pathway or, you know, that basically you're like, this is the quote unquote known knowledge. And then we start measuring things within that and you're out of the range or out of where we think it should be. And obviously there are, there is a range, again, we're talking about genetics, individuals, you know, there's going to be differences within that. And, but if you're just out of the range for no reason, except that there is a reason that you're doing an intervention, you're, you're doing something that we know in most people causes this outcome, you can't just keep shifting the goalposts, you know? Yes, sir. Um, don't move the goalposts. Science is hard. And thinking scientifically is actually probably harder, to be honest, because at least if you're a scientist, it's expected of you. Whereas thinking scientifically is hard because you basically have to take everything that you believe and try to beat it up with a hammer. And there's, there's that feeling of, of you know, cognitive dissonance when you, when you begin to see data that completely conflicts with your worldview. And you get this feeling of, oh, like, how can I, how can I uh, change that? How can I play around with that and make sure it fits my worldview? And the easiest way is like, right, just don't bother. Just be like, right, I don't care. I'm just going to actually follow where um, the evidence leads me. And that's a fairly easy way to live your life. Well, hard way to live your life, but <laughs> you don't have to deal with cognitive dissonance every time you're presented with conflicting data. So that would be one of the things I would take away from this podcast. And also just remember that scientists themselves find this hard. Like they, 100%. They, they have, like, and I literally have interacted with so many scientists. They have so many conflicting ideas in their heads, especially around like uh, topics that are adjacent to their areas of study. And they're just like, they just haven't been, they haven't read all the research. And as a result, they just have the same biases that individuals, you know, outside of that field have. And they find it hard to then break down those biases when they actually start reading into the, the research themselves. Like you'll see someone you know, transition a field. So they'll be like, I study this in biology and then I move to studying this in biology. And they'll like have all these preconceived notions about this other thing. And then once they start, you know, going against them, they're like, man, what the fuck? Like the, they, they find it hard as well. So obviously you as an individual, when this is not your career, this is not your, the thing that you've actually been trained to do, you're obviously going to find it hard. Yeah, I was, I was more confident, I'd say, giving people advice about pain and injury in first year of physiotherapy than I am now. You know, I'm actually way less confident now because you just actually begin to realize how much uncertainty you're often operating under. And the fact that the people who seem to be certain about their explanations for things, they're actually just lying to themselves. And if you were truly scientific, you'd be able to turn around and say, in physiotherapy, a lot of the time we actually haven't a fucking notion about what's going on. And we're just, we're just making it up, man. Yeah, I, <laughs> try not, I try not to think about that in terms of like doctors and stuff, because yep. I always just think, especially in neuroscience, because like I've done a lot of uh, like research in like, like research, I've done a lot of study in uh, neuroscience. And the more I fucking study it, the more I'm like, these lads are literally just making this shit up, you know? And then I'm always just like, well, what if I do have fucking some, you know, issue with my brain? I'm like, 
do I even trust these people? <laughs> like I'll be, I'll be North Surgeon Patty. I'll fix your brain. Easy. Oh, you of all people, I'd be like, no, thank you. See, I had a dream last night that was a crossover of neurosurgery and Paddy because we were rolling together in the jiu-jitsu and he got a subdural hematoma because um, I had been watching some videos about subdural hematomas. And then I had obviously been thinking about Paddy prior, prior to going to sleep. So, I mean, put those two things together, man. And uh, yeah, poor Paddy was all scared. But yeah, anyway. So we're all aware I never dream of Gary. It's pretty weak. Um, but also, anyway. Actually, just on, on the side of that, if people haven't listened to an episode we discussed previously, um, one time myself and Gary were sleeping in a bed and in the middle of the night... In Zurich. He tried to hold my hand. Which I was, was on my holidays, man. It was extremely... And he was like, oh, it's, uh, it was because I thought you were my girlfriend. Okay. Now he's dreaming about me? Should I be scared? Why would you be scared? What's wrong with that? I don't want to be touched by some lad from Kerry. Ah, that's fair enough. That, that's fair enough. Um, but yeah, anyway, guys, right, we need to uh, finish off this podcast. So guys, as I said, look, this was, a, this was supposed to be layering on additional nuances to discussions of blood pressure um, and upcoming discussions on atherosclerosis and heart disease because it's basically just leveling you up a little bit. Um, there's lots of, like, this is a really complicated topic. And like, basically what we tried to do in this podcast was break down things related to the scientific method, a bit of philosophy of science, um, causality, study design, epidemiology. You're not going to get through that stuff in an hour. You know, there's so much more to go into on this, but hopefully that gives you some of the things you should be thinking about. And if nothing else, if you've left this podcast far more uncertain about your beliefs in the world, I'm happy. You know, that's enough for me. Um, so yeah, that that's hopefully going to inform future discussions. And if you are interested in following along with our work, I'd recommend subscribing to the Triage Method newsletter um, that you can uh, subscribe to below. Also, the Triage Method community, that's our free Facebook group. We're posting a lot of excerpts in there from the Coach's Corner content, so do get involved. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, we're putting a lot of content up on YouTube. These podcasts also go up on YouTube. So if you'd like to um, see myself and Patrick's chemistry as we flirt with each other during these podcasts, then that would be advised as well. Um, and online coaching, guys, it's actually the gyms are reopening tomorrow in Ireland, so yeah. we're going to be Listening. Oh yeah, you're going to be listening today. So today, in our, you're probably all at the gym listening to this. So we already jacked. That's going well. Yep. I love the way, and I actually love that. None of you are definitely going to listen to the advice that we gave about going back to training and you're all going RPE 10 for like German volume training um, now at the moment. And I support you, <laughs> support you um, in doing that. But anyway, um, Instagram, Facebook, you know the deal. Uh, follow us. You know We are actually putting out some more stuff on Instagram. We're going to use it a little bit more because we have been advised to do so from the people within our Facebook group. So just going to make more of an effort to you know put out a couple of clips from the podcast, even some of the stuff from the Coach's Corner we're going to post over there um, and also some more article summaries um, on there as well. So, so yeah, that's Probably that. The best place to reach us is definitely still the email newsletter. 100%. 100%. That's, you get everything. If you don't want to be on social media or you don't want to be like, oh, I actually missed that post, literally just get on the newsletter and it will be delivered straight to your inbox and you can curate your own experience where you're like, yes, I actually want to read that or I want to read that rather than being like, well, well they, they didn't post today or they posted uh, this today and I'll just randomly read a bit of this. Oh, I have to click through a link in here. And, you know, most people just don't do that stuff because social media is actually recklessly bad for communicating information especially something like instagram where you just can't put links within the the text which is 
extremely bad. Yep. And that's that, guys. Um, I have nothing else to say, Gary. So uh, it's too easy. It's literally too easy.